All right, let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Sure. Uh, yeah, go ahead. All right, we'll continue with our uh, hymn of the month. Um, comfort, comfort ye my people. Comfort, comfort ye my people. Speak ye peace, thus saith our God. Comfort those who sit in darkness, mourning neath their sorrows, Lord. Speak ye to Jerusalem of the peace that waits for them. Tell her that her sins I cover and her warfare now is over. Yea, her sins our God will pardon, blotting out each dark misdeed. All that well deserved his anger, he no more will see or heed. She has suffered many a day, now her griefs have passed away. God will change her pining sadness into ever-springing gladness. Hark, the herald's voice is crying in the desert far and near, calling sinners to repentance. Since the kingdom now is here, oh, that warning cry obey, now prepare for God away. Let the valleys rise to meet him, and the hills bow down to greet him. Make ye straight what long was crooked, make the rougher places plain. Let your hearts be true and humble, as befits his holy reign. For the glory of the Lord, now shed abroad, and all flesh shall see the token that his word is never broken. All right, we'll continue with the um, catechism memory work. So this is from the Table of Duties uh, concerning Scripture on civil government. We'll go right into the Bible memory work. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Romans 13:3-4. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, 
but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And Luther's morning prayer. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger. And I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil. All my doings in life may please you. Into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. All right, uh, kids can go off to Sunday school. So in that uh, hymn of the month, a lot of comfort, comfort you, my people, is a quote from Isaiah chapter 40, which is, we're going to be reading that today, actually, uh, on what's called Gaudete Sunday, which means rejoice. This is the Sunday of rejoicing in Advent. You'll notice that on the Advent candles today, the uh, pink candle, um, also sometimes called rose by people who don't want to say pink, but let's be honest with ourselves, the pink candle will be lit today, which is to set it apart from the other Sundays in Advent. And this is a Sunday of rejoicing. And uh, the reason that we are rejoicing is, as Isaiah 40 says, and as this hymn says, uh, that Jesus has brought us comfort, right? Comfort, comfort ye my people. Speak ye peace, thus they saith our God. And I don't want to give away the whole sermon because I'm preaching on Isaiah 40, but um, one of the things that sticks out to me about that text, and it's in this hymn too, especially in verses in stanzas three and four, um, is this idea about the valleys and the hills and the highway that John the Baptist proclaims about the coming Christ. So in Isaiah 40, you get this prophecy um, that a voice is going to shout in the wilderness, make straight the, the highway, um, let the valleys be made low and the rough places plain. And then John the Baptist is the one who fulfills that in the Gospels. And we actually get, in Advent, we kind of get two John the Baptist Sundays. We get today, um, where in the Gospel reading today, we're going to learn about John the Baptist in prison. But then in the Gospel reading uh, next week, on the final Sunday of Advent, you get the Gospel reading about John the Baptist actually proclaiming the way of the Lord. Right. So uh, they kind of go together. But anyhow... Um, John the Baptist is the one who fills that, but I've always thought that this text, both whether it's Isaiah 40 or um, in the Gospels or, or, or here in this hymn, for that matter, is uh, such a beautiful image that's painted for us, right? So the the image here, right, is that Jesus is coming, and there's a path that he has to go. And in the Gospels, you get this, by the way, all over the place, right? So like uh, Luke is especially good on this. Luke, Luke um, has this line, right, when, whenever Jesus, the, this transition is in all the Gospels, but um, I think in Mark and Luke, it's especially evident that Jesus all of a sudden is finished with his Galilean ministry and he sets his face toward Jerusalem. And he has to go on this path, right? And that's how we opened up Advent as well, is uh, the gospel reading for the first Sunday in Advent is about Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, right? So we get, we have a Palm Sunday for Holy Week, but we actually open up Advent that way too, right? That Jesus is entering into Jerusalem. He's on this path to the cross, right? Well, this is the path that is prophesied here in Isaiah 40 that the path that Jesus must go, that he could win for us salvation. And the image here, right, is that you have, uh, you have hills, right, and you have valleys, and you have hills and mountains, right, and there's a highway that Jesus is supposed to be coming on, right, on his journey to the cross. And the prophecy here is that the hills would be made low and the valleys would be brought up and the path would be straight, right? And it would be this straight path, right? That 
whenever someone is looking for Jesus, that they can see him, right? They can see the cross, right? That every, notice the way that, well, we can just look at the hymn. It's in Isaiah 42. Um, but in, in Sansa 4, right? That all flesh shall see the token that his word is never broken, right? The reason that the valleys have to be made filled in and the, the hills have to be made low um, is so that everyone can see the cross, right? And notice the way that the gospels also talk about Jesus on the cross. He is lifted up, right? And this is his glory so that everyone can see it. So this is the joy of Advent and the com- part of the comfort of Advent that everyone can see Jesus, right? That, that it, he's not... Um, he's not hidden from us anymore. Our salvation is made known, right? This is why uh, that, that, and then this find it, this also finds its fulfillment in Christmas, right? And an epiphany that that Jesus reveals himself and is made known. But um, a, as a kid, I learned "Go Tell It on a Mountain" as just kind of a VBS song, right? But then I I always thought it was um, odd when I found out that's actually more of a Christmas hymn. But there, there is a truth in that. Not that that's maybe the most um, theologically dense hymn ever. But there is this connection with evangelism and telling the good news of Jesus and Advent and Christmas because, oh, we can all see him now, right? He's not hidden anymore. So go shout it out. Right, and this is uh, that's actually in Isaiah 40. Right, go shout it out from the mountaintop. So um, that is a biblical hymn in that sense, at least. And uh, anyhow, okay, that's what I have to say about the hymn. Any questions or comments on that? All right. In the catechism memory work today, we have uh, the civil government verse from the table of duties, and um, this this should be review, but I just want to point out. A couple things about Romans 13, 3 to 4. One is you get the job of government in Romans 13, 3 and 4. And this is uh, important, right, because this is what Luther is saying when he says, hey, this is the Bible verse that tells the government what to do. Um, What's the the government supposed to do? Um, For one, they're supposed to be a terror not to good conduct but to bad, right? So if a government hypothetically, is a terror to good conduct, they are outside of their realm of authority, right? So if if the government is persecuting churches, right, that's going against Romans 13, okay? Just be very simple about that. Um, The job of government is to to terrorize bad conduct, right, To, to punish wickedness, right, and to promote peace. Um, and then, and then the second thing I want to point out is that that line, the government does not bear the sword in vain. That uh, part of the way I, that the government is a terror to bad government, or to sorry, that that the government is a terror to bad conduct, to wicked conduct, is by enforcing with violence. And this is something I think we just have to be really honest about is that there's no such thing as a law without true law enforcement, right? Unless someone is willing to throw you in jail or to, and to arrest you, um, to bring the force of the law against you, right, then it's not a real law, right? And, and we, one of the things in this country that – I'm not, I'm not trying to be like super political here or anything, but one of the things that when I read Romans 13 and I think about um, maybe not even our country but our state or even our city is that the there's this disconnect between laws and and the willingness to enforce laws or law enforcement that um, there's all these like there, I mean. Think about something like the tax code, right? 
Now, the IRS probably will actually enforce the laws, but but it's so daggum complicated. Or think – this is actually a better example. Think of um, city city ordinances, right? I mean how many people are breaking city ordinances and don't even know it because there's just so many of them, yeah. right? And they're and and they're not they're not at all enforced, right? And uh, I would say if you want to have a biblical government, right, um, you should have laws that you're willing to actually enforce, right? That because that if people the the idea of government according to the Bible is that people who aren't Christians aren't just going to obey the law for no reason, right? People who are uh, wicked people, right? Not unbelievers. They have no reason to want to love their neighbor, right? Um, because they're prideful, right? They want to love themselves. They're going to do what serves them best. And because of that, we need God institutes government to actually punish wickedness because I can't just go preach to people on the street and say, hey, you need to repent and love your neighbor more. They're not going to listen to me, right? So you need someone that actually has a gun that'll say, hey, you got to do this or I'm going to arrest you, right? That's the idea. Well, when we have all these just gazillions of laws that are not at all enforced, it seems, I don't know, clownish to me. It seems un, like fundamentally unserious. Does that make sense? Anyway, um, I'm not trying to, again, I'm not trying to get like really political here or whatever, but just from a biblical perspective, um, that's one of the things that concerns me about uh, civil government today, because the Bible does address civil government, is that in some sense, they do look like they're bearing the sword in vain. Right. So, uh, anyhow. All right. Any questions or comments on that? Yeah, I think you know the Pharisees. They have this long list of rules. And yeah. It, it's kind of the same thing. Where, you know. Yeah, but instead of from a from the theological or religious side, it's more from the from the left hand kingdom side, right? From yeah. that that it is kind of Pharisaical. It's like you got to follow. All these gazillions of rules, but um, half of them don't matter, and you just got to know which ones are which. Right? Unless, unless they wanted, you know. Well, anyway, I shouldn't, shouldn't go. I shouldn't keep going. Um, all right. So that brings us to a close on that introductory stuff. Let's uh, jump back into the book of Ezekiel. So, going through key passages here, and. Um, this is maybe the one of the weirdest passages in Scripture, so be excited. Um, Say the weirdest. Yes, def- definitely, possibly one of the weirdest. So Ezekiel four is about the siege of Jerusalem, but as symbolized by Ezekiel. So if you remember, when we went through Jeremiah, we had this uh, enacted, this idea of the enacted word, right? And how did that play out in Jeremiah? So whenever Jeremiah went and gave the temple sermon in Jeremiah chapter 7, you had... The uh, Jeremiah goes to the temple door, right, and preach this sermon about what's going on inside and outside the temple. It's almost kind of object lesson-esque, right? And then also whenever Jeremiah preached on the potter and the clay, where did he go? He went down to the potter's house and was kind of giving this object lesson with the, uh, with the clay. Well, in chapter 4 of Ezekiel, we get the same kind of thing where the prophet acts out something that God tells him to. And it, and what he's acting out here is the the siege of Jerusalem. Okay, so uh, I'm going to read this and um, kind of pay t- careful attention because it, it is fairly odd. Right? 
Now, you, I mean, you thought that the, the image of the glory of the Lord in chapter one was kind of odd, right? Um, this is maybe even odder in a different way. Okay. Now, you son of man, take a brick, set it in front of you and draw the city of Jerusalem on it. Then lay siege against it. Okay, so basically God commands him to play with army men, right? Like like little boys do. He's like, okay, make your map right out here. Take your risk board and uh, and then act out the siege um, of Jerusalem against it. Okay, construct a siege wall, build a wrap, pitch military camps and place battering rams against it on all sides. Take an iron plate and set it up as an iron wall between yourself and the city. And and remember, remember where Jer- or sorry, not Jeremiah, Ezekiel is. He's in Babylon, right? Taken captive. Uh, this so this has already happened. What what he's acting out here, and um, he's amongst other Israelites, right? He's in, in the, by the Kabar Canal, and they he's he's acting out. God's punishment on these people, right? And just imagine yourself being a normal Israelite trying to deal with the fact that you've been taken captive by a foreign nation and you're walking along the the canal and you see the prophet there and he's basically playing with bricks and iron, acting out this siege on Jerusalem, right? What would you think? You'd think this dude's insane, right? He's just lost it, right? And, and, if you remember in the in Ezekiel's call, um, the where was that? Let's see here. Um, actually, we didn't even did we cover this? Well, we covered the watchman thing, but back in chapter three, one of the things we skipped, by the way, is um, that the Lord prophesies here to Ezekiel that the people are not going to listen to him, right? So not only does Ezekiel is Ezekiel kind of acting crazy? But he already knows, yeah, these people are going to think I'm crazy. But the Lord commands him to do it anyway. And also in chapter 3, we, we skip this too, that um, the Lord commanded him to eat the scroll. right? So he had, he had prophesied some prophecies, and then and the Lord commanded him to go ahead and eat the scroll, um, which is actually in, in one way a beautiful image. right? This is what um, Thomas Cranmer picks up on in that prayer. Actually, I talked about the prayer in the sermon last week of uh, let, let us hear, read, Mark, learn, and inwardly digest your word, right? Well, Ezekiel literally had to inwardly digest the word, right? So, yeah, go ahead. Like, I mean, it's, it's in Revelation, it's metaphorical referring to that, but you don't mean metaphorical here. Mean- no, he actually ate the scroll, yeah. Yeah, this is uh, verse, chapter 3, verse 1. He said to me, son of man, eat what you find here, eat the scroll, then go to the, speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he fed me the scroll. Son of man, he said to me, feed your stomach and fill it with your belly with the scroll I'm giving you. So I ate it. And this is the best part. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. Right? So the words of God are sweet as honey to us. Isn't there a bitter um, reference from Revelation that relates to this or not? Yeah, that sounds right. Uh, I have to have to look that up. I, in other words, the law can kind of convict you. Well, right. I think in Revelation it turns sour in his stomach. Right. Do you remember what chapter that is, Chad? Um, Sorry. No, you're good. Well, yeah, one of the points I've been making is you can't understand Revelation without knowing the prophets. This is a good example. Um, but that section, Revelation, is, is just escaping me right now. It, it does sound familiar. I'm just, I don't remember exactly where it is. Well, if you look, if you find it, let me let me know. We'll we'll go look at it. All right. So um, he's already been kind of he he already had to eat the scroll. He's already been told no one's gonna listen to you, right? And now back in chapter four, he says um, he's you know told basically to play play toy soldier here, and um, he's doing this. And then this is the where it starts to get even weirder. Then lie down on your left side. And place the iniquity of the house of Israel on it. You will bear their iniquity for the number of days that you lie on your side. For I have assigned you the years of their iniquity according to the number of days you lie down. 390 days. So you will bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. Okay. And we'll, we'll keep going here in a second. What's that? Oh, okay. 
Let me just look at that real quick. Yeah, you you really cannot understand um, the book of Revelation without knowing the prophets. Okay, so um, so the angel comes down, has a scroll in his hand. Um, okay, this is within the trumpets, so that we got. Is this the sixth or the fifth? First world past it. Yeah, this is the sixth trumpet. Okay. Um, and then the final angel comes down. No, because there's twelve trumpets, right? So the three rainbow over his head. His face is like the sun. His legs were like pillars of fire. Yeah, I'm just trying to make sure I get the context right here. But in the days when the seventh angel will blow his trumpet, then the mystery of God will complete. Okay, so John John goes to the this uh, seventh angel and asks him to give me a scroll, and he said. So the angel tells John this time um, to take and eat it, but it'll be bitter in your stomach, but it'll be sweet as honey in your mouth. Right then, I took the little scroll from the angel, saying it was sweet as honey. But when I my stomach became bitter, yeah. So I think I think you're you're right there in what John says there in verse 11. Um, kind of gives the key. He said to me, "You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings." Okay, so Revelation is a beautiful book in that it's about the coming of Jesus, and that it's sweet to John, and that that. The overall message of the book of Revelation is that Jesus wins, right? Jesus has the victory in the final day. And um, this is sweet, I think, to John. Um, in, in fact, John kind of asks for it, right? He says, um, give me the scroll. Um, and, and, you know, John knows the prophets. And I think John, maybe he even expects this a little bit, right? When, because he's been, his this whole vision has been all, this language from Daniel and Ezekiel and so on and so forth that maybe he even expects like, hey, if if the angel gives me a scroll, then I'll get to eat it and be sweet like honey like Ezekiel did, right? But this time it is also bitter because a lot of the book of Revelation, as you know, is also um, prophecies of destruction against wickedness. And, and he says, um, this is also when he says about many people's nations, languages, and kings, um, that's actually... Standing in contrast to chapter 7, which comes just uh, a few verses before, um, where there are people coming to the throne of God from every tribe, language, nation, right? And now he says, now you're going to have to go prophesy against every tribe, nation, and language. So there are faithful and unfaithful from every tribe, nation, and language. And um, I think, Michael, like you said, yeah, the, the gospel there is sweet, but the, the law is still bitter. So... All right, good connection. The so um, yeah, back to Ezekiel four then. So the Lord has now told Ezekiel, now you need to lie down on your left side for three hundred ninety days, okay? And then in a second he's going to tell him the prophet to do the same thing for Judah, right? So this is about the two kingdoms: Israel's the northern kingdom, and and Judah's the southern kingdom, um, and. That and and remember when we've gone through the two kingdoms, uh, that Israel was in some sense much more wicked, right? They had basically no good kings, but Judah was much more faithful, in the sense that they were still pretty bad, but they lasted longer <laughs> in trying to remain faithful to the Lord, and they had a few good kings, right? So, um, the Lord here tells him to lie down on his side for 390 days. So that's like that's over a year, right? That's um, about a year and a year and a month or so, right? And uh, he has to do this, and then we'll we'll get to what he has to do while he does this. And then the Lord says, verse six: When you have completed these days, lie down again, but this time on your right side, and bear the iniquity of the house of Judah. I have assigned you 40 days, a day for each year. Now, um, there's a couple things there. One. The symbolism of left and right in the Bible. So almost always the right side 
is more symbolic of righteousness, right? So Jesus uh, is called God's mighty right arm, right? And um, it's out of the right the right arm that salvation is won. And this is also why um, I kind of mentioned it. Maybe I did in when we were talking about civil government. When uh, Luther talks about the two kingdoms of the world and the church, he talks about the left hand and the right, God's left hand and God's right hand kingdom. Right. So there's um, if you if you look you do a word search for like right in the Bible or right hand or right arm, you get this. But Judah is the Judah is the tribe and the nation from which Christ will come, right? And so that's Ezekiel's right side, where Israel is the the more abhorrent, the more disobedient nation. That's his left side. So that's something to think about there. And then uh, notice the number 40, of course, uh, for Judah, right? This is the time of testing, the time of trial um, for, for Judah, a day for each year. So he gives Judah 40 years as opposed to 390 uh, for Israel, which is rather interesting. Okay, then he says, face the siege of Jerusalem with your arm bared and prophesy against it. Be aware that I will put cords on you so that you cannot turn from side to side until you have finished the days of your siege. Okay, so basically he's going to be tied up there, laying on his side for like a year, oh, like a, uh, a year and a month plus 40 more days, so... What is that? A year and two and a half months or so. Um, and yeah, I mean, sometimes guys get complain when they get calls out of seminary that like aren't the best calls, right? Like at least they don't have to do this, right? What are they complaining about? Uh, no, you know, no one's tying me up, telling me to lay down on my side for two years. So can't really complain, can I? Right? Yeah. Well, and it's uh, it's on a canal, right? So he's it's probably like sandy, right? So you know how you go to the beach and you get sand everywhere, and it's like terrible. Yeah. Yeah, I think he. I mean, he's only preserved by the Lord, right? I mean, there's this is not medically possible in a sense. Right. Right. <laughs> so then this is how he's going to be fed. And this is where it gets, this is why I said it's maybe the weirdest thing in scripture. So also take wheat, barley, beans, lentils, millet, and spelt. Right. So, and no, he's not going to get to make beer out of this, right? This is, um, it sounds like that, but put them in a single container and make them into bread for yourself. And you are to eat it the number of days that you lie on your side, 390 days. The food you eat each day will weigh eight ounces and you will Eat it at set times. You will also drink a ration of water, a sixth of a gallon, which you will drink at set times. You will eat it as you would a barley cake and bake it over dried human excrement Mm -hmm. in their sight. The Lord said, this is how Israelites will eat their bread, ceremonially unclean among the nations where I will banish them. Okay, so he's called to cook his bread, his bread cakes, um, which are very simple, right? This is... um, it's either oil or, or j- even just water, maybe, that mixed with the the grains and then made into a, a very rough barley cake bread. And um, he has to cook this while he's tied up, lying on his side, over human excrement. And uh, this is meant to be a demonstration to the people of Israel who are now in captivity of what they have done to themselves, right? This is the punishment of the Lord for idolatry and wickedness, right? And and you think it's like, in one sense, the, the message there is, you think this looks bad? Think about how bad hell is, right? This That's what you're going to be in for eternity if you don't repent, right? Um, and in some sense, I think this is a kind of hellish existence, right? And... It's hellish, especially in the idea of the human excrement, because it's basically taking the waste of humanity and making that your life. That's that's kind of the image there. 
And that this is what he says um, about the Israelites is this is how they're going to eat while they're in Babylon, right? They're going to eat unclean food, and um, th- this is going to be their banishment. Uh, this is the life that they're going to live, right? Um, but th- there is a moment of hope here in a second, okay? So he says, but oh, Lord... I have never been defiled from my youth. Now I have not eaten anything that died naturally or was mauled by wild beasts, and impure meat has never entered my mouth. So Ezekiel is very pious, right? And he says, well, look, I'm willing to do what you tell me to, but um, I don't want to make myself unclean. And the Lord replies to him and says, okay, I'll let you use cow dung instead of human excrement so you can make your bread over that. And he said to me, son of man, I'm going to cut off the supply of bread in Jerusalem that will anxiously eat food that have weighed out and and drink, drink ration water for lack of bread and water. Everyone will be devastated and waste because of their iniquity. Um, Which, remember, this is the question of Ezekiel. Where's the glory of the Lord? So chapter one starts off with this vision of the glory of the Lord. And um, the idea over and over again is that the glory of the Lord has left Jerusalem, right? And now the only person who's seen the glory of the Lord is, he actually saw it in Babylon, which is very odd, but is Ezekiel, who's faithful, and the glory of the Lord has been revealed to him, and now he's kind of keeping it and trying to warn the people and try and, so that they can have the glory of the Lord back, okay? Yeah, so um, this is a kind of a weird thing in the Bible. It's it's almost not a contradiction, but um, basically the only way to make sense of this is to say that the Bible uses Son of Man in two different ways. So in Daniel chapter 7, I believe it is, uh, we get this prophecy of Christ being the Son of Man. And... Then throughout the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel is called son of man. And I mean, Ezekiel is Christ-like in a way. So there is that connection. But the prophecy in Daniel is, it's about the ancient of days and it's about the glory of the Lord. And it's about uh, Christ being these, um, this son of man that's going to come and reign as, as king and bring the glory of the Lord. Ezekiel, um, it seems to just be kind of a nickname for him. And then in, in some ways, and then when, when Christ comes, his favorite name for himself is Son of Man, right? So whenever Christ refers to himself, he always calls himself Son of Man. I think Christ is kind of pointing to Ezekiel a little bit, kind of like saying, hey, I'm calling myself Son of Man, maybe you ought to read Ezekiel and see there's that now there might be I mean that's that that's definitely possible it's definitely more about Daniel for Christ I think um this is kind of the irony of our favorite hymn beautiful savior because beautiful savior uses that term to say to talk about the two natures in Christ son of God and son of man right do you remember this line um which is not untrue but the, the kind of irony is that when the Bible uses the term son of man in Daniel and when Jesus uses it of himself, he's actually claiming his divinity, not his humanity. Right. Um, I can see the correlation um, where uh, Ezekiel, a little bit less choice, but um, he's, being, he's taking on the sin of Israel for 390 days. Whereas Christ takes on the same name. Yeah, it, I, I think Ezekiel is certainly Christ-like, and it's probably why he's assigned this name. Um, but with Ezekiel, it's the only, I guess the, the reason I don't want to say they're the exact same, although they might be connected, is that Ezekiel is not divine, right? The, the prophecy in Daniel is not about Ezekiel. So, um, so it's kind of weird you get these, too. So really, the what maybe what the beautiful Savior hymn should say is, "O Son of Man and Son of Man." <laughs> right? <laughs> right? You have two different Son of Mans. You have a, a human and a divine. But anyway, um, although obviously 
Christ is the, the son of, of God as well. Hey, Chance. Um, all right, so that's chapter four. Where are we at? Okay, let's uh, flip over to chapter 10. Um, kind of going along with just what we talked about there is the, this question of where is the glory of the Lord? And um, yeah, I should have been better about picking some choice verses here. So that this this basically harkens back to what we talked about with chapter one, where in chapter one you have this vision of the glory of the Lord, and you have the four living creatures with the wheels and the throne and and all of that, right? Well, you basically have this this uh, glory image, this image of the glory of the Lord, show back up, and um. What he he what he what Ezekiel sees here and what he prophesies to the people is that that glory of the Lord is he he sees them he sees it now leaving the temple from Jerusalem, right? So uh, this question of Ezekiel, where is the glory of the Lord? The glory uh, Ezekiel has seen now in Babylon. Now he makes that even more abundantly clear. That because of the iniquity of Israel of Judah, the glory has left the temple, right? The glory of the Lord has left the temple. Chad, did you have something? Okay. Um, I don't think I'm actually gonna even read all that. You can you can read it, but uh, it's basically that same image that we read in chapter one of the angels and uh, the four faces on the on on each of the creatures. And the wheels, and this is, um, if you look at like verse 18, then the glory of the Lord moved away from the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherubim. The cherubim lifted up their wings and ascended from the earth right before the eyes. The wheels were beside them as they went. The glory of the of the God of Israel was above them, and it stopped at the entrance to the eastern gate of the Lord's house. There were the living creatures I had seen beneath the God of Israel by the Kibar Canal, and I recognized that they were a cherubim. Each had four faces and each had four wings. And what looked something like human hands under their wings. Their faces looked like the same faces I had seen by the Cape Bar Canal. Each creature went straight ahead. Okay, and uh, that actually continues into verse 11 as well. But the idea there is that this glory of the Lord is now leaving the temple. Right, He's no longer there. And this is, um, I mean, this is the punishment for sin, right? What When Adam and Eve... Sin, what happens? They're cast out of the garden, right? And there's angels guarding the the gate. This is very much reminiscent of that, right? There's the angels; they stop at the gate of the temple, right? They're they're no longer in the temple, and the whole reason the temple was built, the whole reason the tabernacle was set up by God, was so that the holy God could could be with the unholy people and give them His glory. And and now their punishment for their iniquity has been to be outside the presence of the glory of the Lord, right? To be cast out into Babylon, if you will. Is it, is it safe to say that this also not only refers to the Babylonian captivity, but also the events in 70 AD? This, well, like, this is very analogous to another theme in the prophets that we've talked about before, which is the day of the Lord. Right, so the day of the Lord, um, the day when the Lord comes, this is kind of an Advent theme, really, is this day when the Lord's going to make everything right, and that means both punishing wickedness, and but also vindicating His people and and saving His people, right? So, well, what is the day of the Lord? Well, there's actually a lot of days, right? In some sense. There's, um, for for the Old Testament prophets, the day one of the days of the Lord is when they get to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, and the glory of the Lord is restored. Right? Another day of the Lord is Christmas. Another day of the Lord is the crucifixion. Another day of the Lord is the resurrection. Another day of the Lord is the ascension, and an, another day of the Lord is Pentecost. And another day of the Lord, and maybe the the most ultimate day of the Lord is when Christ comes back again. Right. The same thing goes with 
a lot of these th- – this is actually what I'm preaching on today – is that the when we look at the, the Babylonian captivity, um, one of the things that we're looking at is that – is, is something that is true for for people of all time. That we born, if we're born of Adam, we are captive to sin. And we have to be rescued from that captivity. We have to be released. Right? That's uh, that's the message of Jesus coming, right? Is that he has brought a release for, for the prisoners. Um, but that the, the thing I'm saying in the sermon today is that that's not just some abstract statement. That's a that's a true reality of life, that we are captive to sin and we live in a world that is captive to sin. And that has real effects on the world, right? So um, my answer to your question is yes, um, but I would say it's not just that either, right? So the glory of the Lord leaving the temple. Now, in a specific way, I definitely see what you're saying in that um, you have two destructions of the temple and they're par- historically, they're definitely parallel to each other. Um, but we should also recognize by way of application that the glory of the Lord could always leave any temple, right? Um, if if we turn away from Christ here and don't rely on his mercy and don't preach his truth, then the glory of the Lord can leave us too. And this place can be destroyed. Maybe not physically, but definitely spiritually. Right? And you can see this and I mean you 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 know this still happens in churches. Like think about um I don't want to just like rail on on them for no reason, but uh, think of like the ELCA, right? Like the glory of the Lord has left that church body. Like there was there was a time in history where the the church bodies that at least made up the ELCA, um, that's the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, that, that there was a time when there were they were I would still con- we would still probably have considered them a Christian church body to some regard, right? Um, now, from their roots, they've always been doubtful on the the uh, infallibility of Scripture. But um, there was a time when they were much more Christian than they are now. But like the, I mean, they're. I think they have transgender bishops now. They'll commune your dog if you bring your dog to church. I mean, it's like the glory of the Lord has left, right? Um, they're. Yeah, it's just it's just straight up blasphemy, like nonstop, right? Yeah. And not to say that there aren't maybe some true Christians still left in those churches, but um, there there's lingering churches that had the name all along that never went that far off. Yeah, right. They wanted to claim that some of those were shaking Sure. But you can see in that example that there are churches where the glory of the Lord still leaves, right, a, a place, and. Um, that's a that's a warning, right? So, uh, so we are going to get to Ezekiel's temple, right? Yeah, eventually. Okay. We have. Oh no, you're good. So this is our normal speed of uh, right. So uh, we did two more key passages today. So we've, we're doing about two a week, and we got one, two, three, four, five. Six, seven, eight, nine. And nine more key passages will get to the temple. So, <laughs> you know, that's how it goes. One of my favorite subjects. Yeah, that's, I, I know. All right. Let's, uh, yeah, go ahead. Go. The bronze serpent in Numbers? Yeah. Yeah. What about it? Well, I mean, I think that's another occasion where they were, were trying to tell you to look forward to the Lord you know, on, at all times when you needed 
Yeah. Yeah, no, certainly. Certainly. And I think that fits today, too. Every time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the, the history of God's people is one of turning away from the Lord. And um, this is, in some sense, the meaning of his graciousness is that he keeps coming back to us. Right? He doesn't leave us up to ourselves. Yeah, well, this is how this is how people are, you know? <laughs> it's like... Um, they, they, and so I'm teaching on the Gospel of Mark in Oxford, and um, this is kind of how like the Pharisees and the scribes are, in in Mark, is he's like going around and he's becoming incredibly famous because he's healing everybody and casting out these demons, and preaching and doing all this incredible stuff, and it's like, well, why would anyone not? Why would anyone have a problem with that? And Jesus gives you the answer when he says, when they're mad at him because he eats with uh, sinners and tax collectors, and and they they get mad at him, and he says, hey, look, I, the, those who are righteous have no need of a physician, and that's the thing is they think that they're righteous, right? They think that they don't have a problem, and when you have that high of self-regard for yourself, then you're offended when someone comes along and says, I want to help you. All right. And uh, so it's pride. Yeah. So, how, you know, people that really need help are hard to help. Because, you know, they, they have some pride. Yeah, 100%. All right, let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have sent your son, Jesus Christ, and you have made a highway for him to be lifted on the cross for the salvation of our sins. We pray that you would always help to keep us humble before you and before him, that our eyes may be opened and our hearts be turned from stone to flesh, that we would believe on that cross for our salvation. We pray that you would bless us today as we worship you in spirit and in truth. We thank you for the gifts that you will bring us today. We pray this through your Son, the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.